Well, hello, and welcome to the Reconstructionist Podcast, where we help you reconstruct while you deconstruct so you don't self-destruct. So this week, we have Chris Price and Alita Friesen, and we really wrap up this whole conversation we've been having over the last few weeks with um, the whole idea of women in the church and leadership and 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 how that all comes together um and what i found to believe what the bible actually says and and we talk about their book the whole church which i think is a really good summary and and a really good intro and also conclusion to this series if if you guys want to pick up any of the books that we've talked about i would say that this one is is the first one you should start because it's short it's applicable easy to read um and gets right to the point and so we really discuss um how we can empower women in the church, um, how God did this in the Old Testament, how God has done this in the New, and we tackle some of the lingering um, arguments that are still left um, that complementarians have against women in leadership, and we tackle them. And and honestly, it was just a really fun conversation. I'd love talking to them. Um, and if you want to hear more from them, they also are pastors at uh, a church in Vancouver called The Way Church with Jason Ballard, and and um, I, I love everything they're doing there. Uh, uh, so I would honestly tell you to check them out because their sermons and their church is super awesome i've been following it for a little bit now and so i just wanted to plug that um but without further ado here's our concluding conversation um with chris and alita well hello chris and alita how are you guys doing great Great. thanks for having us oh of course Oh, uh, I'm super excited for you guys to be here because you guys are capping off this long, now four-week conversation we've had on women in the church and ministry and leadership. And so I'm excited to bring you guys in because uh, in reading your book, uh, The Whole Church, um, I found you really helpful for kind of recapping a lot of these ideas, but then you also address a lot of the like lingering questions that I know people have in conversations I've had um, with people in my own life about it and, and, uh, just in general. So I'm super excited to dive into it, but before we do that, can you guys give a little intro to yourselves, like who you are, what you're up to? Um, and yeah, just those kinds of things. Sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris, uh, and, uh, I'm one of three lead pastors at a church called the way in Vancouver, a church that we planted last fall during COVID, uh, I'm married to Deandra. We've been married 13 years, have two kids, Caden and Mila, 10 and 8. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm excited to be here with you. And I'm Alita Friesen, uh, originally from Houston, Texas, now living in um, just outside of Vancouver and Langley. I've been married for, uh, I should know that right off the top of my head. I, <laughs> I think it's 18 years. I've forgotten. That's so terrible. Uh, 18, maybe 19 years. And then um, we have four kids and uh, they're three boys, little girl. They're awesome. And I am on the teaching team at The Way in Vancouver with the guys and it's awesome. And yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, again, your book, um, The Whole Church, I found super helpful. And Chris, you kind of address this question in the book that I know that I've heard in discussing this particular topic on women and ministry and leading in the church and doing all these things um, that often comes up. And it's this idea that I feel like some people wrestle with. And I know for a long time for myself, um, 
I wrestled with it when I was considering myself complementarian um, was that I felt like, oh, if I let go of this, then I have this like feeling inside me that I'm leaving biblical truth that I'm like letting go. And I know that that's something that people often say where it's like, are you guys sure that in writing this book and doing these things and even you Alita are preaching in church, are you guys sure you're not just like leaving biblical truth to embrace what our culture is okay with? Like, are you, are you sure that this isn't us kind of just becoming more conformed to our culture and because feminism and those kinds of things and women's rights are really big in our culture that we're not just changing scripture and what God has commanded to allow us to do what we want instead of what God has commanded. Are, are we sure about that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a big concern uh, on my heart. I probably could speak for Alita as well. It's a concern on our heart. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said, tell me what the world is saying, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying in seven years. Hmm. Meaning that culture will exert pressure on the church and the church, instead of challenging culture or speaking prophetically to culture, will start to parrot culture and be conformed to culture. And that will then reflect itself in our exegesis and how we understand scripture. And as you just noted, there's been this kind of swing in the last 60 years, women's rights, uh, feminism. And so the critique, you know, the critique would be, or the critic would go, well, of course, now you're coming out with these readings that empower women. Um, for me, I would just say, personally, I was a complementarian for many years. I had the same uh, concern in my heart. Uh, I almost held it as a badge of honor that my position mm. was one that was offensive to people in culture because it proved I wasn't conforming, you know, yeah. uh, and I held it in spite of opposition, I held it in the face of people criticizing me, people crying in front of me, people leaving the church. I know what that feels mm -hmm. like. I held it as a young man. I changed my mind, not because culture changed. Culture was the same the whole time. I changed my mind because I continued to study and read scripture and come across better readings, I think, of the whole, you know, narrative and arc of scripture and some of these specific passages that I originally read as very restrictive. Um, so it was scripture mm -hmm. that changed my mind. And I should also say the experience of walking with and working with remarkably gifted uh, women leaders and preachers, leaders and preachers who, if I'm honest, were more gifted than I was. Uh, yeah. And that creates a lot of cognitive dissonance in your heart and mind uh, as well. Um, so that's that's probably how I would respond to it. Yeah, I agree completely with Chris. I mean, that's for sure one of the things that I I also grew up in a complementarian setting, and I never wanted to bend to culture. And exactly what Chris said. I mean, it's been because of our reading and our our study of scripture that, that we've landed at this conclusion. And I mean, and the reality is, is that there's, you know, deeply knowledgeable men and women for a lot of years who love Jesus, um, who study the scriptures that, you know, still disagree on this issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for us, I think we, we talk about it in the book, but we have, after, you know, reading the new Testament and, 
and the Old Testament, but just the per, the perspective that we've landed at is that we're just going to err on the side of freedom um, mm. rather than erring on a restrictive side. And so, um, but that's not because we're bending to culture. That's because we've we've come to scripture and we've actually allowed it, like we've bent ourselves to scripture instead. So, yeah. And I think like culture, uh, I know we probably want to move on to like a different question, but I, I think like we all like, it's interesting that culture influences us in all different ways. Like, I think mm. it's naive to think that, for example, the church fathers weren't influenced by the patriarchal bent of their culture in their reading of First Timothy yeah. 2. Of course they were. Uh, we're also influenced if you have a cons- like a complementarian bent. Well, we're influenced by our tribe and theologians we admire and the culture of the church we grew up in. There's cultural influences at work in our hearts as a complementarian as well, that might potentially blind us to what scripture is actually saying. It's not just all mm-hmm. on one side, um, you know, and I think that's important to, to note. And then I always remind myself, I believe many, many things that are very offensive to culture, and we're going to continue to take hits from culture. And we're doing that because of a clear, uh, you know, because of our reading of, of scripture as well. And so, I'm not really as concerned as I used to be about, oh, maybe I believe this now because of feminism or something. Yeah, no. And I think those are really good points. And I think I um, had the same, a similar kind of journey as, as you guys, where I grew up in that kind of an environment. And it was just very clear. And I remember I was sitting in a Bible college class once before I was at Bible college, I was just visiting it as a high school student. And we read for Timothy that passage. And the class was supposed to kind of debate it and like share their thoughts and like what they thought. And I remember just being very, I sat there and was just like, it is what it is. Just like, read it straight. I don't get why you guys are changing this. Like it's very black and white. And as I've studied scripture um, and I've, I, as I've also experienced female leadership in the church, I have continually been challenged, I would say by the Holy Spirit on that issue in the sense of the, the more I dug into it, <laughs> the harder it was for me to say that I was right. <laughs> right. And the more that I read scripture, the harder it was for me to say that I was correct. And the more that I experienced, because I also am in this mindset and I know this isn't perfect, but it's also like, if this is the way God made it, shouldn't it like work better than like the other option? Doesn't it, it like, it's for every other thing that's true. And we believe that. And I just continually saw that like having female leaders and female preachers in my life, like, benefited me greatly in my spiritual growth. And I had all these challenges where it's like, you know what, I, I just came to the place where I can't honestly say that in studying this, that I think this is what the Bible says, that I actually am now on the other side where it's like, I actually, if I were to go back, I would feel like I'm being more influenced by my more complementarian influence. Like that would be the pressure I would feel is actually, I feel more pressure and even it's weird. And so it's easier in culture to hold this view, I find. But in the church, I found that it's much harder, where right? I get way more pushback <laughs> having this view than, and I didn't really face pushback from culture because it's not like a lot of people are coming to church telling you their views on women. I found it, I get a lot of pushback from friends, family. And it's like, it's not super fun having this position either, but it's like, and yeah, I, I definitely feel that in the whole um, let's err towards freedom, which I found recently for me that it, it kind of made sense where I laughed where I was sitting with someone and I used to feel this way too, where I would say, I'd just rather be more cautious and be as conservative as I can be and get to heaven and, and find out I took it too seriously than not seriously enough. 
And mm-hmm. I found that to be funny is where now where I think about it, I was like, man, that sounds just like what the Pharisees said. And when Jesus showed up, it wasn't like, good job. You guys took it way too far. It was usually <laughs> not the, the response. So I definitely right. echoed that. Um, so I, I want to ask you guys this because your book title, I really love the whole church. And I find that that's really what, um, what we're talking about when it comes down to. And Tara Beth Leach, um, when we interviewed her, kind of echoed this sentiment of we as the church for a long time have honestly neglected like half of the church um, as far as discipleship, as far as empowering to use their gifts and, and even giving platforms to use those gifts. And so I just wanted to ask you guys, like, what do you think the church has missed or is missing um, by, to be quite frank, it's just been easier as a male leader to have more influence and, ha- and be more empowered to use. If you have the gift of teaching or leadership, it's just, it's for the last, at least for sure, the last hundred years, it's just been easier for that. And women haven't been, what have we actually missed as the church in not empowering the entire church to serve God in the way that they've been gifted? You know what? Two Sundays ago, like a, like a week ago, I spoke on a one of our Sunday night services and I had a maybe... 25 to 35 year old guy come up to me afterwards and he's at school. He's in his graduate, he's getting a, I think a degree in theology. And he said, um, he said, you know, I just want to thank you because I, I have not heard a lot of female teachers or communicators or preachers. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just able to hear it in a different kind of way. And he said, I found it really and I, I'll use the words that he described. This is not me describing myself, but he just basically said, you know, you were able to say the hard thing, but it was almost like in a nurturing kind of way, like in a gracious, compassionate perspective that I wasn't, maybe it would just be had, had landed different if it were a man. Now that's not to say that obviously I don't think one is better than the other, but it just, it reminded me that just like in, I, what I believe would be a healthy marriage. There are two different perspectives, two different, mm-hmm. you know, when my husband has something and he, that he's wrestling through and he comes to me and I can come alongside and, and bring it from a different perspective. It kind of gives a better you know, view of everything that's going on and uh-huh. vice versa. When I'm wrestling through something and he comes along, then we can kind of see it all together. And I'm like, why, why would that not work in the church? Mm-hmm. Why would that not work when it comes to every aspect of the church. So, uh, at our church at the way, um, I've found it to be really beautiful watching women in literally every, every avenue of what we're doing there. We're, we're everywhere, not in a weird way. I mean, there's, there's equal parts men and women in, in all the roles, but it's so beautiful to see how, uh, a guy will host a service and how a female will host a service or uh, there's a male small group pastor or a female small group pastor or Chris will preach or I will preach, you know? So um, what I think we miss when we leave that half of the church out, I mean, there's so many, so, so many things we could say, but I think women just bring, I don't want to put us in a box because some women are, are motherly and nurturing or hospitable. Others are CEOs of companies outside Mm -hmm. of the church why not bring that skill set into the church? We'll just, we'll miss all of that. So, you know, whatever we have, let us use it. And it can only, 
benefit the church? Chris, you might have a better answer than me. <laughs> a better answer. No, not a better answer. Um, yeah. Just a different, a different answer. <laughs> a different answer. A, a different yet equal answer. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, the title of the whole church, the reason I, I love it is because it has the idea of, hey, we need the whole church. We need, as especially in the West, where we are, as it gets increasingly more secular, we need all hands on deck. Why would we sideline uh, the teaching and leadership gifts of, of women uh, when there's such great need in the world? We need the whole church on mission using their gifts. Uh, but it's also the whole church in the sense of, the hope is that a book like this would provide healing and a degree of wholeness for women who have felt marginalized or treated unfairly or not given the same opportunity as men and are carrying those wounds. And our words can't bind up the wounds, uh, but I think that there's a trajectory towards wholeness that the arguments we make in the book provide uh, by argument for the empowerment of, of women leaders and preachers, right? Um, I would say, you know, what do we need to, to do? Um, well, I mean, I think it's it's powerful what, what Alita shared. I think of my own daughter and this idea that unless you can see it, you can't be it. Mm -hmm. And I love the power of getting to point my daughter to remarkable, gifted, godly women uh, serving in the church and can say, be like that. If God so called you and gifted you to lead and to teach and to preach, not only can you do that, not only are you blessed in that, but you have role models to look up to and to imitate. So we're robbing a generation of women, of young women, of our daughters, uh, of examples of, of female leadership uh, and teaching in the church. And so that's mm -hmm. a big thing to miss. Uh, mm -hmm. apart from empowering women. Uh, the other thing I would say is we need more than like, this more practical. I think we, we think about like platform. We think we need to platform women so yeah. they're visible, which is true, which is true. It relates to what I just shared. If you can't see it, you can't be it, right? So we, we do need to do that. But I think even more than just platforming uh, women here and there, we need to create pipelines like we have for men, pipelines where we're actually raising up within the church, not just the seminary, but in the actual church, we are raising up, equipping uh, female preachers and leaders. So that means intentionality, that means opportunity, that means rejigging your whole structure so that all throughout the church, there are opportunities, there are uh, spaces where where men and women can lean into their leadership giftings. Um, and so it's not just Alita on our, our teaching team. Like we have uh, females pastoring our small groups. We have other uh, women teachers. Uh, and then we're developing and creating opportunity for men and women. But there has to be a bit of a course correction because there's a real uh, scarcity. And this is our fault a scarcity of women preachers and, and, and leaders in the church because there hasn't been opportunity, even though there has been giftedness. Mm -hmm. That's a really sad thing. So I think it, it speaks to the cultures we create in the churches, in our churches, um, and not just the things we say. 
Like, yeah, of course we believe in women in ministry. Okay. That's so easy to say, mm-hmm. show me the paths and pipelines you are creating. Even if you're just starting, even if it's just yeah. minimal, show me the pa- pathways and pipelines you're creating to raise up mm-hmm. women in leadership. Um, Cause that's key. Yeah, no. And that's so good. And I think that it's kind of like, um, uh, in churches, I've heard it said before that there are some churches who like are, uh, they would say that they believe in like the gifts of the Holy spirit, or whatever, but they function as if they don't believe that. And I think that in the same way we can do that with women where you can say like, oh yeah, I believe in the whole church and empowering them and like raising up leaders. But then it's like, but how are we doing that? And it's like, is your Billy Graham rule really actually helping women be discipled? Well, <laughs> if the only people who uh, are on staff are male and they can't meet with anybody or do anything like, it's like, so how can we actually start pouring into the women in our church to help raise them up to lead, not just on the pastoral side, but also in small groups and in different areas and give them the same access that feels like men have been given for a lot longer and also empowering them. I think that's huge. And I think too, it's this whole idea of we want everybody to join in the mission that God is doing. And you guys in your book tackle the old Testament and go, how did God include women in his mission in the old Testament? What did he do there? And so I wanted to ask you guys, like what, what happened in the old Testament? How did God empower women to join his mission? Um, What did that look like? How did he use them? Um, yeah. What, how did we see that play out in the Old Testament? Well, I think right out of the gate, we see Eve, um, mm-hmm. you know, right out of the gate. So uh, and it's, this is interesting. So in Genesis chapter two, uh, God command, commands Adam and Eve to work and to keep the garden. And that idea of working and keeping um, is usually throughout the Old Testament used in the context of worship. And there's a, a guy named Greg Beal, who he's a, um, he's a temple theology. He's like an expert on temple theology in scripture. And he says that the garden, the garden of Eden acts as a prototype for the tabernacle, which then also foreshadows the temple. So um, when there was this command for Adam and Eve, for both of them to work and to keep the garden, he says that it's actually priestly language. So they were essentially called like a priestly ministry side by side. And when we were doing the research for our book and we came across this and other people talk about this, Ian Proven, who's another Old Testament scholar, he talks about this priestly language. That was really remarkable to me that just right at like in Genesis two, when God called them to do that, this was like, they were to work and take care of what they had been entrusted with together. Mm. Um, That was really special for me to, to find out. And then, I mean, then, then there's other people, Deborah, who of course was um, a judge and a leader of Israel. We read about Hulda and Miriam. And I love Exodus. When you read the story of Moses, I mean, Moses' story starts with so many women who were involved mm. in his safekeeping and his arrival. And then Miriam, his sister, and then she ends up being um, called a prophet. And um, so any, any other people you want to add in there, Chris? No, but I like that you brought up the uh, Mago Day, right? Like even in Genesis 1, uh, there's this radical democratization of God's image, whereas in the ancient Near East, you'd have this idea that the king is made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet in Genesis 1, you have no, 
male and female made in the image of God. And so there's a priestly component to that, but there's also the sense in which they're to rule. And so there's like this, this ruling component. And so as like under God, side by side, ruling, serving, ministering to creation together, uh, this powerful picture of kind of uh, equality. Um, and then you do see in Genesis 3 that sin comes in, it distorts the relationship between the sexes and for the rest of the, the Old Testament, God's working within the fallenness of that culture, continually drawing people towards his ideal of, of flourishing. And within that, you see kind of women pop up uh, in a landscape that's dominated by, by men and that's patriarchal. You still see women pop up and engage in like a ruling priestly capacity. And you already mentioned some very key, I think, examples. Yeah. And with that, I think, well, I've also, I'm taking uh, the Bible project right now has courses that you can take for free on their website with Tim Mackey and other people coming up. Um, and they're doing one on Genesis right now. And so I'm in that. And it's interesting to bring up Eve. And we talked about this before on the podcast with a guy named Jonathan Hepner that um, often what's used as an argument is Eve is the helper of Adam. And so Adam's actually in charge, but it's interesting what that word means in Hebrew. It's not just like, oh, like she's helping Adam out and it's all up to Adam. It's like the helper is more like, like it's referred to as God when he comes in and rescues someone. It's referred to like, it's like, it's more than just help. It's like someone is coming in to like save you <laughs> in a sense. And it's so interesting to think about her. And even the Holy Spirit's referred to as a helper. And it's interesting to be like, Adam was made and so was Eve. And they were actually like together fulfilling the mission of God. And the thing is that I, and you guys address this in your book, a common argument I hear about the Old Testament is it's like, well, okay, maybe you got Deborah. Maybe we can argue about Eve for a bit. Like, I'm sure you got Esther and these other people. Um, but what do you do about like the Levitical priests? Like in the Bible, in the Old Testament, only, the only people allowed to be priests were males. So doesn't that kind of make it clear that, I don't know, this is what God wanted from the beginning? Yeah, I think there's an interesting assumption. Like, I I actually don't think that's an argument for male leadership. I think mm -hmm. it's people point to when they've already concluded only men can be leaders. Mm -hmm. um, because in reality, I mean, it's not just exclusive towards women. I mean, they were only Jewish. Does that mean Gentiles can't lead in the church? They were mm -hmm. only from the tribe of Aaron right? Or the Levitical tribe. Um, does that mean that other tribes and can't lead? No, of course not. So why are you making this argument just about gender? It seems like special pleading is what I would, I would call it. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, that priesthood is tied, tethered to the, the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, all things that Jesus fulfilled. And are no longer normative or binding for Christians. Hmm. Um, not only that, a lot of the reasons why uh, women weren't operating as priests had to do with clean and unclean regulations that have also been done away with by Christ, fulfilled by Christ, and no longer carry into a new covenant era. So hmm. why would we make an argument against women in leadership in the church based on the time-bound fact of the Levitical priesthood. Um, that to me doesn't actually seem like a good argument 
at all, especially when there is this original calling for men and women to be in priestly ministry together as equals. And in the New Testament, that calling's confirmed when it says in 1 Peter 2, the church is a kingdom of priests. It says that in Revelation chapter 1 as well. And that, of course, includes women operating in a priestly ministry. And so I find that to be, uh, and that's common, you know, they talk about this pattern of male leadership, um, but I think it's pretty presumptuous and it's only compelling to someone who's already convinced that only men should lead. Yeah. Everything Chris said, I agreed with him. I, I don't <laughs> think, it's, I don't think it's a strong argument. I think it's one of the, one of the weaker old Testament arguments that you can make. I mean, Jesus fulfilled, um, you know, that was a pattern for then not a pattern for now. I mean, Jesus fulfilled everything that the tabernacle and temple required. And, mm. you know, this is not a strong argument. So. Yeah. I don't know how you rank it, like the authority of the the Levitical priesthood and the, the prophets who are going, thus saith the Lord. Mm. Um, sometimes people say that the woman prophets only engaged in a private kind of ministry, not public yeah. like Jeremiah. But I think that is also very unconvincing. Deborah is engaging in a very public ministry, which is described in terms similar to the way Moses's ministry is described amongst Israel. And Hilda is, is bringing prophetic words to the king and the council. I mean, that's very mm. public. It's not like just two people chatting and spontaneous sharing. Like, I feel like the Lord might be saying, it's like her prophetic word brought about religious reform in mm. Israel. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I don't know how to rank that. It's like, well, if women can be prophets and go, thus saith the Lord, um, I don't think we just go, well, the priest is over that. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how that ranking works. That's just an yeah. aside, but um, I don't think it's pretty compelling. Yeah, well, and I found your guys' argument on it. It was the first time I've ever heard someone like point this out, and I don't know if it's just because I just haven't read someone particularly tackle the Levitical priest thing, or I just read way too many complementarian books about why it makes sense, but it is like the whole, like, you realize they were male Jews from one tribe. So if you want to like play the argument, like it just doesn't make sense. Like you can't actually, like there are other things you could look at to try to maybe argue, but it just doesn't actually make sense. Cause if you're going to logically say that, then you logically also need to say, well, only our pastors can be from the tribe of Levi. Good luck with that. And they also need to be Jewish, which is like, well, that's almost everyone in North America is out. So that sucks. So as we move from the Old Testament then into the New Testament, how do we then see, because like you talked about, we have this kind of Levitical laws that in some ways are empowering to women considering how they were treated back in those days. Uh, there's a lot of things that are actually good, but in another way, there were also, there was kind of a constriction in the sense of, like you said, you use the uh, menstrual cycle example as like that made it inconvenient for women to take part in being priests or doing those kinds of things. It just made it a reality that couldn't happen. So as we see the new Testament now, 
Jesus entering, how did Jesus then kind of take what happened in the Old Testament and then continue to empower women and include them in the ministry and the mission of what he was doing in the New Testament? Um, okay. I mean, I think lots of ways um, Jesus remarkably pushed against the constraints of the day uh, mm. came to women in ministry. Uh, so just a couple examples uh, that I can think of off the top of my head would be like uh, Martha and Mary. Uh, Mary is sitting in the position of a disciple uh, and learning from the feet of a rabbi. It was commonly understood that if you were the disciple of a rabbi, uh, the rabbi was passing on his yoke of teaching to you, a uh, yoke that in Jesus's own words was, was easy and light. He was passing on his yoke to his disciples. The understanding is you would take that yoke yourself and pass that along to others. In other words, you would teach. And so you see Mary at his feet in the posture of a disciple learning from Jesus with the mm -hmm. assumption of that day that she would pass it on, which is one of the reasons why Martha, I think, is calling her out. It's not just because Mary's not helping her with hospitality. It's Mary's stepped out of a social, a social norm in her place. And Jesus mm -hmm. goes, it's not going to be taken from her. Uh, she's chosen the better part. And so he blesses her in that uh, you see with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus crosses all kinds of cultural barriers and boundaries then and empowers her in a sense to be the first evangelist to her people. And many come to believe through her ministry. I think it's significant that uh, in the resurrection narratives, uh, the first people the resurrected Christ appears to is women. And uh, in the words of Thomas Aquinas, they become the apostles to the apostles. Yeah. They become the first proclaimers of the good news of the resurrection. I think that's really, really powerful. It's like Jesus as his first act post-resurrection. He thumbed, like he, he, he snubbed the patriarchal male-dominated bent of, of the culture by revealing himself to these women uh, you know, as the resurrected Lord, and they shared with the disciples. Um, and so, and then in the book of Acts, you see so many moments in which women are, are leading alongside of men as the Holy Spirit's poured out, women prophets, uh, women teachers, you've got a woman apostle mentioned in Romans 16, you've got women deacons, uh, on and on. There's a lot of evidence. I don't know, Alita, you could definitely add some more, I think. Um, I I mean, I think one thing that stands out to me is, especially if you've grown up in the church and you read the New Testament, sometimes we can just take it for granted. This is just the way Jesus treated people, not just women. He just, this is just the way he treated people. But to get into the culture and understand that it was so countercultural, the way that he treated women, the way that he mm -hmm. gave them dignity and honor. And um, it was, I mean, women were not even allowed to give, you know, testimony in court. I mean, women were considered more like property. I just read a book that I'm trying to remember. I can't remember who the name of the author. I had to read it for one of my graduate classes, um, my New Testament graduate classes, but it's called A Day in the Life of um, a First Century Jewish Woman, I think. Anyways, but it was so enlightening to read um, these. It was all based on historical documents 
mm. not just of first century Christians, but just women in general at that at that time. So to go into it kind of helps you to understand what it was like just to be a female at the time. And so for Jesus to come into that culture and to radically treat women with so much honor and um, even the, the, the woman at the well, how he, uh, just knowing the story, the way that you read it, it actually, the way um, the original um, Greek language is used, he actually, it says that he had to go that way to mm. that well. And she was there and, and as Chris said, I mean, then she goes and she ends up because of her testimony witnesses to her whole town and they all come to, you know, find out about Jesus. And it's just this beautiful, the way that he honored and elevated women. And it, I just grew up reading it. So it was just mm -hmm. like, well, it just is. And it wasn't until you find out, I mean, that's why, that's why I love the Bible in general. It just elevates it and helps you to really get a good grasp on, oh man, that's why it was so amazing that Jesus, that the way he treated women was um, just really beautiful. So yeah, that's all I have to say about, <laughs> yeah. about that. Well, well, and I think, I think that, well, especially for me growing up, those things were underplayed and I find that what happens is you have to do a lot of now it's funny because if you're more egalitarian, you get accused of having to do like theological gymnastics to try to get to this. But I'm like, man, I find that I have to do a lot of theological gymnastics to like explain away all these different things. And even you guys in your book address the disciple thing again, where that's a lot of um, that's sometimes the argument is, well, look here again, we've got, who did he pick? Did he pick Mary to be one of the 12? No, he picked just men. But then it's like, yeah, because he was rebuilding like the 12 tribes of Israel. He picked 12 Jewish men. Like his, his goal wasn't like, here's my leadership team. This goal was like, I'm rebuilding Israel. Um, so that's another argument that just doesn't make sense. But I do find that again, like when I sat in that class as a high school student um, at Briarcrest and, and they began to discuss that the passage in Timothy, um, that often is just like the line where I know for me for a long time, it was like, I just don't know what to do with this passage. And we had, again, Jonathan Hepner on, and he explained what was going on in Ephesus. And you guys in your book tackle that too, like what was going on in the church, what's going on in that letter, what is going on with some of the language. Um, but I find that people still, um, and I, for a long time in my heart was like, I know that this is possible, that these things are true, but I find it hard to like, put my faith in like a history book or in, where it's like, it feels scary for a lot of people where it's like, don't you feel like I would just rather play it safe and just do what the Bible says? Like, how do I know I can trust this history? When we talk about like the temple of Artemis, how do I know that that's even real? How do I know that people aren't just like kind of playing Greek gymnastics with this sentence to make it mean something else? Like, it just feels like a scary place for a lot of people. It's like, sure, Jesus empowered women. He had them be evangelists. He gave them the gift of prophecy. We can see them kind of working in things in the church as like deacons. And you can argue that one of them was an apostle. But when it comes to this passage, I just, I feel scared that I'm just trying to change the Bible now. Like what Paul talks about in the letter where he's like, they want to just create theology that tickles their ears and it's what they want to hear. And he's like, I'm just scared. That that's what I'm doing now. 
what would your response be to someone who's who's afraid of that? Because I often find that that is the like, because in honesty, I can't think of, I mean, there's passages where it talks about like women not speaking in churches, which none of us obey. Um, and women like do, but there's not, I think this is the only passage in all of scripture that I can think of where Paul like specifically says, Hey, I do not permit a woman to, uh, teach or lead. Like that's, I think this is the only one that like specifically you could argue that specifically for pastoral ministry. So how would you, what would you say to someone who's wrestling with that, with this one passage? It's like, I just can't, I'm, I, I honestly, and for me, it's what I felt. I just feel scared that if I let go of this. I'm now not taking the Bible seriously. I'm putting more weight on human beings than I am on the word of God. And I'm just like heading down a, da- a path of making a theology and a God in my own image. What would you say to that? I, I'd say I sympathize. You know, that's been my own wrestling uh, as well and the journey I've gone on. Uh, I do think that it's, it's helpful to read Romans 16. Romans 16 and all the, the women that Paul mentions, and to see his glowing endorsement of their leadership gifting. Phoebe's the patron. She's the one who brought the letter. She would have been in that context tasked with reading it and explaining it because she was the one in contact with the sender. So the book of Romans, maybe the most influential epistle Paul ever wrote, first mm. read and publicly expounded by Phoebe the carrier of the letter. And so read his glowing endorsement of women. And then, so read that and then flip to first Timothy two and read what he says there. And you will feel the jarring impact of that from glowing Mm. endorsement to, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. You're like, well, what is something very specific and contextual is going on there. And wherever you're at in this debate, we're all going beyond the plain meaning of the text. Mm. The plain meaning of the text is I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority, period. But if you're complementarian, you believe women can teach in all kinds of scenarios and situations. Mm. Of course, in fact, in in Corinth, women are prophesying. Paul says the Mm. purpose of prophecy is encouragement and instruction. Mm. So women are prophesying in the congregation with men present. And Paul says the purpose of prophecy is encouragement, strengthening, comfort, and instruction. So Mm. women are instructing men and women in the congregation prophetically. What's fascinating is historically, many complementarians and reformed theologians have understood preaching to be prophecy and Mm. conflated the two. And how fascinating that now we pull it apart because we're acknowledging women were definitely prophesying, but we don't want them to preach when men are there. That's a side note. Sorry. But we all think Paul is forbidding a certain type of teaching Mm. and he doesn't tell us what type. So we have to infer we all do based on context. None of us are just taking it as the plain reading. And so we, of course, think he's talking about an abusive use of authority and false teaching. If you're a complementarian, you have to go, well, I think he's talking about teaching authoritatively as an elder or pastor when the church is gathered on a Sunday. You're adding in all these things Paul doesn't say. That's yeah. how interpretation works. We're all doing it. The problem for the complementarian, I think, that scares me 
is all the weird line drawing that's happening. So, mm-hmm. so many complementarians I know go, oh yeah, a woman can teach a Bible study, a woman can write scholarly articles, a woman can teach at a conference on a Monday. So Tim Keller, complementarian, that's what he thinks. Kathy Keller, his wife, they wrote a book about Jesus, justice, justice gender. She teaches that content to men, men and women on a Monday. So, mm-hmm. And if she's teaching the Bible, she's teaching authoritatively to men and women. So it's like, she can do this and not this and that and not that. And and it becomes this weird like line drawing that feels more like the Pharisees than Mm -hmm. anything you encounter in the New Testament. You know what I'm saying? It's like she can teach the scripture to men and women on a Monday, but Sunday, no. Um, The other thing that they're doing is like they make this argument from creation. But they only applied in the church. None of them are yeah. consistent. No one's going, oh, this actually means she can't, in a secular university, teach men either. And she can't lead a business with male employees. The only ones who are doing that consistently are like the really conservative types. But now they're more restrictive than the Bible is. They've got no room yeah. for endeavor. Um, mm. So that scares me more. <laughs> that scares me more. This way we're just drawing these weird lines. She can teach boys and girls for sure. She can probably teach teenagers, but there comes a point, we don't know when, where she can no longer teach males. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's 21, 18, whenever they're out of adolescence, we're just making it up. (laughs) So like that scares me more. Mm. It does. Mm. That was a rant. I'm sorry, but it's a podcast. It was good. It was good. Yeah, you know, I, I, I really do sympathize with that because, you know, as I said, I grew up in, in a complementarian setting and as a female who felt called into ministry, I had to figure out what the lines were for myself. I didn't want to go against what scripture said or, and, but there's that wrestle of, okay, Lord, I feel you calling me to this, but I, what side do I err on? And I think for myself here is where I've, I've sort of like landed when it comes to the text, especially to Paul's writings, because for Paul, I think a lot of women are like, Oh, do I, do I like Paul or do I not? Um, I really like Paul for the record, but the thing (laughs) is, is I, (laughs) I, I do think that the best way to go about answering this question is by doing the research, not Mm. just relying on other people yourself. I mean, I, I say the same thing when I teach, I mean, go find this out for yourself, open your Bible for yourself, do the Mm. research, dig into scripture, pray. And I think the biggest attitude we all have to have in this thing, no matter what side of it you're on is Lord, it's kind of goes back to the first question you asked. Like, I want to yield myself to scripture. I want that to be the thing that I've been to. And so Lord, open my eyes, enlighten me. I mean, open the eyes of my spirit and open the eyes of my heart so I can know what this is saying, even if it makes me uncomfortable at first. And I think that's the journey we all have to, to go on. And so I have such deep respect and great relationship with people who feel very differently on this men who would never in a million years, let me come do anything in their church other than teach a Sunday school class who I love and Mm -hmm. esteem and honor because it's not a salvation issue. So that's what 
I think sustains relationships between churches. We can disagree on this and still love each other and honor one another. And that to me is just so, so important in this discussion. And we talk about that in the book as well. We, we have friends who disagree, um, family members who disagree. And, um, you know, it's tougher for me, probably. I mean, my son, who's 15, um, actually ordered a copy of the book <laughs> off of Amazon because he was like, um, embarrassingly, I didn't have any at home for him to read. So he ordered one and he's like, he said, mom, people at my school are telling me that what you're, what you do is wrong, that you shouldn't be doing that. Mm. And he said, I need a one sentence answer. And I was like, there's not a one sentence answer (laughs) for this, uh, for this discussion. But I mean, it's tricky, right? People, the way they'll spin it, the, the, the bottom line is, being gracious and generous in heart, I think, whichever whichever side that you end up um, arriving at. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's so powerful, and I feel like it's the the generosity. I think at least when it's polarized, it's like the generosity of the egalitarian is like to go to the complementarian. You you value women, love women, and do believe that women have spiritual gifts that should be used to build up the church and you're for that and you're championing that you just think maybe that men the elders of the church should be men uh but under that there's all this freedom for women to use their giftedness and and you love women and of course there's many women who hold that theology as well um and then i think the generosity that goes from i think a complementarian to an egalitarian is not ah you guys you're letting culture trump scripture or you're you're not taking the bible seriously or your hermeneutic is so off base and oh you're you know oh this is a slippery slope to liberalism what's next Mm -hmm. you know it's like that's that is not a generous posture from the complementarian to the egalitarian i mean we are fundamentally aligned on the core things and we are all trying there's some hard passages in the new testament Peter says of Paul, some things Paul writes are hard to understand. And Mm. he spent time with Jesus and spoke the language. Okay. And so like, there's going to be things that are hard to understand that we might disagree on. And the grace really does need to go both way, both ways. Um, And I even extend that grace to my former self, you know, Mm. who held a complimentary position and sadly hurt women along the way. Um, and created wounds. Um, yeah. So anyways. No, and I find that super helpful. And I think too, where I am also able to stand in the in-between of knowing what I thought back then and why I thought it and how I feel now. And it is like what you said, where at the time, and that's why I also, I'm always cautious, like, because I want just feel like this, I personally feel like this is wrong. And I did it before where it's like, I just want to say that your view is wrong. And I feel like it's oppressive and sexist. And I used to think before, well, your view is wrong and you don't care about God and the Bible. And I question like how you do theology. And it's like, ah, those both just aren't helpful. Cause I know that myself before as a complementarian, when that's what, when I studied it, that's what I saw that I genuinely wasn't trying to be sexist. I wasn't trying to 
control people or like push people down. Like I just read the Bible and I didn't even like it. I was like, I don't, because Francis Chan says this thing and I used to pride myself in it, in this where it's like, I don't even like that. I believe this, but I, but I do believe it. And Francis Chan says this thing where it's like, if the Bible said that all Chinese people had to stand on their heads, I would just do it because it says it. And that used to be my logic, which is like, I don't like it, but if it says it, I'm going to do it because that's what it says. And so now where I'm at now, looking back, it's like, I know that like, of course there are people who are actually sexist and want to oppress people. Like it, it'd be silly to think there aren't, there isn't anyone like that. Um, but the majority of complementarians I've talked to, that's not actually their heart behind it, even though I disagree. And in the same way, we're now, if you're complementarian, because I know that there are people who totally disagree with me and us on this, listening to this, it's like, recognize that we aren't just a bunch of people who are like, throw out your Bibles, whatever almighty culture says, that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're just going to change. It's like, we have genuinely wrestled. And of course it's not everybody. There are lots of people I know who just believe this because it's what they believe and they don't have a lot of reasoning as to why, which I'm like, please, <laughs> that's partly why I want to do this is I'm like, I want to give you handles as to why you actually think this is not just because you feel it. Like I want it to be as a type five on the Enneagram. I just want you to have something in your head, please. Cause it just makes me happy on the inside as a five. Um, <laughs> but yeah, to recognize that we're not, we didn't do this flippantly that especially for the three of us being complimentary before, if you guys were anything like me, it was a hard journey. There was a lot of back and forth of like, Oh, I don't know how I feel. And honestly to say this was large for me where the fact was like something that I really strongly felt before to come to the other side, I needed a lot of evidence. Like I didn't just make this decision on a women for the church to recognize that like, this isn't a salvation issue. We can have unity on this because that's the thing is I would love to live in a world where we're us and like Timothy Keller and John Piper and Francis Chan can sit down and I'll be like, we are one. And that's, we disagree on some of the things and that's actually okay. Cause at the core, we're all about Jesus and we're, we're all trying to follow him and we can challenge each other on this, but we recognize that we're a family on this. No, I love that. Um, so lastly for you guys, um, as you, you're kind of wrapping up this conversation. I know that a lot of this can be heady and feel like it's so big and there's so many things. I don't know where to start. Um, and so I just want to ask you if you could say just like one thing that someone who is a Christian, who's um, feeling this like, yeah, I want to start empowering women. I want to start um giving space for giftings to be developed. I, I want to figure out how to do this. Well, what would be one thing that you would say would be like a great starting practical place for us to start to become the whole church? I, I mean, I think Chris said it earlier, creating pipelines in churches mm. for raising up and discipling next, not even next generation leaders. I mean, or females, but just even women who are in their twenties and thirties and forties who can still contribute in leadership positions. Um, but for sure, creating pipelines for the next generation. I, I think that that's probably the question I get asked the most is we believe in women in ministry, but there, there aren't any. So mm. we're just kind of, I'm like, well, then unless you're actively looking for them or investing into them, then you're not going to find any. So I think the best way, and when we say pipeline, to me, that is defined as create opportunities for people to volunteer and step into that role. And you're going to find 
people who are gifted and it might surprise you or, I mean, that's how it happened with me. Somebody had a feeling and they asked me to volunteer in a role and very quickly kind of shot off from there. And, um, but if that person hadn't sought me out, I think, um, and I was already behind the scenes doing the thing, like doing the work of ministry, um, that prepped me for that time. Um, or the Lord was prepping me, you know, behind the scenes for that. But it, I look back at that and I'm like, man, it's not cause I just like raised up my hand. It's cause somebody older and, you know, whatever came up, came along and identified me. So if we mm-hmm. have people doing that. I think that will inevitably lead to more females, you mm-hmm. know, shooting up the pipeline and in the leadership. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking actually recently I read it, I think, but this idea that, that God, when he incarnated, when God entered history in human flesh, he came as a man. It's like, oh, why, why did Jesus come as a man? And I think we, maybe we would say there are a lot of reasons, but one that's curious to me is that men in that day had the power hmm. and Jesus and some of our, you know, today, you know, that's been a thing. Uh, and Jesus came as a man and showed us what to do with power hmm. to submit it to love. Um, he showed us what to do when you're the most powerful person in the room. You submit that power to love, which means coming up under people to lift them up, to serve them, to wash their feet. And so I think there's a calling on, on men who've had position and prominence in the church to use that power to create space for others, specifically in this conversation, women. And that will require intentionality and will require uh, you moving to the side. I mean, there's this thing in the, the pastorate where, the pastor becomes like the expert prayer and preacher and wisdom giver. And it feels really good for the pastor, uh, but it prevents people from growing to maturity using their giftedness. The pastor burns out. It's really problematic. The call of the pastor is to what? To equip the saints for works of service. And that means coming behind and coaching and supporting and lifting up. And we need men in the church where leaders need to do that, uh, with, with women, um, intentionally. Um, so that's what I would say to, to male pastors. Um, and then to women, I'd say, you know, uh, keep going, keep persevering. God has given you those gifts for a reason, not just to benefit some, but to benefit the whole church, um, and keep going. Um, so that's what I would, I think, say, I agree with everything Alita said around the pipeline and stuff like that. No, and that's so helpful. And I think too, it can even be like, if you're just someone who's like not in charge of a church or you have no authority or leadership or whatever, and you're like, what do I do? I know for me, the biggest thing in my first steps in this was just allowing realizing where I had only male voices, so whether it was podcasts, books, 
or even discipleship where it was like these are all males actually allowing you to broaden your horizons a little bit and maybe subscribe to something that isn't just men all the time uh, talking so you get that other perspective and then also creating spaces in your life where you do allow um, the other half of the church to come in and speak and to um, give their perspective and uh, and to seriously take their voices seriously and let them be heard and then for women too I don't know what it's like to be a woman but I would say like speak up lean into your giftings don't if you feel called don't let people's opinion change how you feel God has called you to and really lean into it and I think God will use you in amazing ways and also buy the book the whole church uh <laughs> it's really it's really short um and it's really accessible and you guys kind of cut out all the excess stuff exactly. and just get down to like the good stuff and you kind of leave all this like rant because i i Thank love you. theology books that's pretty much all i read but i will be honest that like for most people there's a lot of rambling and rabbit trails that most people aren't super interested in um and so what i love about your guys's book is it's short it gets to the point and it's really really good so i would also say pick that up um Thank you guys for coming to be on here, for wrapping this up with me. It's been a ton of fun. It's been fun meeting you. Um, and thank you for that book. I hope there's more because it was it was so good. Seriously, thank you so much, guys. <laughs>